0: Imagine that a um, little boy comes home uh, from school or wherever and uh, mummy um, gathers him to her and puts him on her knee and, and says, I've got some really good news for you. And the little boy's all uh, excited. Maybe it's um, she's been baking and there's something special in the oven or... Or maybe she's been out shopping and there's a, a, a toy there. And she says, here's the really good news. Daddy's very angry. It doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, it, it just seems to be a complete disjunction. But in a sense, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Here, we've seen over the last few weeks, he... Um, uh, his letter to the Romans is focused on the gospel, which is good news. Um, he has said back in, uh, uh, just in, in verse 17, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We unpacked that a little bit last week. And we saw that these great, wonderful truths about about God are, verse 16, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now there's no doubt at all that Paul believes he has amazing good news about God and and it is extraordinarily powerful. It is therefore a real shock When the first thing he says after that is that God is angry. And yet that is exactly what he says. Verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How then could God's anger be good news? That's what we're going to explore a little bit uh, this evening. But in in truth, uh, the full goodness of the good news will have to unfold over coming weeks. But we can start to see what Paul says as he sets the scene. Why it's so important for people who, who believe the gospel, people who believe that the gospel is good news, also understand that God can be angry. First thing that we need to understand, though, is that there are, various, there are some qualifications that we need to put on this statement about the wrath of God. For a start, God is not intrinsically angry. Um, the Bible makes it very plain that there are certain characteristics of God that are intrinsic to him, Eternally. He is love, says John. There is something in the character of God that, that could not be God. He could not be God were it not, uh, were he not able to express his love. He is love. His love is intrinsic to him. And then there are other things about God which are. Which are are not fundamental to his personality and his anger is one of those. Martin Luther, the reformer, used to describe God's anger as his, as his strange work and his love as his proper work. The um, uh, philosophers, who love to use clever words, talk about God's anger as accident- accidental or adventitious. That is... Um, it is accidental in that it is not intrinsic to his character. It, 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 it accretes to him for other reasons, but it is not intrinsic to him. Adventitious, because like adventitious roots on, the, on plants, it, it grows out of something more fundamental about God. And what is more fundamental about God is his justice and his holiness. God is absolutely... Just, indeed, the language that Paul, the Apostle uses for that is he is absolutely righteous. By and large, he uses that word in, in, uh, in Romans. And a part of that mean, the meaning of that word, not, not exhausting it as we saw last week, but a part of that, the meaning of that word is that he must punish every single sin that ever happens in all of history and he doesn't do that entirely dispassionately he doesn't he doesn't uh, he doesn't do that in a sort of emotionally distant way god is horrified by sin horrified by evil there is a deep visceral response in him which which comes from his very heart not because he's intrinsically angry but because he's intrinsically just righteous Holy, And so this, this response arises in God's heart as a result of the evil that there is in this world. Now lots of people find that very, very difficult to believe. They, their, their fundamental belief is in a nice, warm, cuddly, grandfatherly sort of God who, who just accepts everybody. In a, in a neutral and, and a warm and loving way. And what I want to, what I want to say to those people is, is, a God like that would not be really interacting with the realities of this world. If this world was a place where celebrity paedophiles got caught quickly and punished for their sins before they'd done much at all, then perhaps we could have a cuddly uh, God. If there, if there is uh, no war, or if uh, wars were always uh, waged by people with precision weapons who only kill the people who are making war and never kill innocent wa- women and children, then perhaps we could cope with a, a, a cuddly God. If, if every couple who engendered a child between them, did it in a, in a, because they were deeply committed to a lifelong loving relationship and to nurturing that child up into adulthood. And if there weren't thousands upon thousands of children in this country who grew up in, in dysfunctional homes without uh, both parents who live with the emotional, educational, relational, and even medical consequences of, of, of neglect. If those things weren't happening, perhaps there could be a nice, cuddly God who just uh, uh, soothed everyone uh, and stroked their backs and welcomed them in. But that is not the real world. Gary Horgan, uh, a lawyer, who wrote a book, The Good News About Injustice, describes how he had to go to Rwanda shortly after the genocides, where, in 1994, where 800,000 people were killed. And he describes the minds of some of the people he met. They say, he says, fine, if being brutal makes you feel terrible inside, then don't do it. But it makes me feel powerful, alive, exhilarated, masterful. So quit whining unless you want to stop me. He goes on, that description of a dark Nietzschean world of self-will, a vacuum devoid of moral authority or spiritual resources for good used to seem excessively melodramatic to me. Then I got out more. No, it, it, it is tough, it is difficult, it is a shock to read about the wrath of God, but actually you see, when we plumb the depths of the evil that is going on in this world, I think we would find a God who wasn't angry extremely deficient. Frankly, I could not worship a God who had no anger. Just the tiny little um, piece of God's world that I've seen here is a world with far, far too much pain. Amongst people within 50 yards of this church. Now it is a, a, a tough truth, but a Uh, God without wrath would be either completely out of touch with the world or completely unjust. He could not be a God worth worshipping. So God is angry then, says the Apostle Paul. We must understand that if we are to take God and this world seriously. But then... Uh, Paul gives us a a second surprise as he describes the fundamental problem in this world that God is angry about. Did you notice that? Let me read verses 18 to 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since then what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. The image is made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Fundamentally, he's saying that what has gone wrong in the world is that people have ignored God. Yes, there are many, many other things that people do wrong. But all of them uh, stand underneath that great Fundamental, universal reality that people turn away from the living God. Now, some people get outraged by that. How can God minimise the the sin that the, the, the outrage is done to other human beings and say no, it's far more fundamental what we we uh, do to Him. Or on the other hand, how can God be, be um, unhappy uh, with us when we've lived a good life, even if we have ignored God? Well, I think if God was an incidental part of creation, just another person out there that we had some obligations to, but we had equal and parallel obligations to other human beings and so on, we might well question whether God is right to be angry centrally about that. But actually, if we see God as the underpinning of all other things, of all goodness, of all the good things, and every rejection of a human being is fundamentally the rejection of God in whose image that human being is made, we start to realize that actually every single one of our failures and sins is ultimately a failure against the source of all goodness in this world. The creator God himself. To ignore God then, no matter how good our life might be, is like living in someone's house, someone else's house, and demanding that uh, um, we consider it our own and ignore the owner pretty soon the owner will kick you out. It's like, it, it, it's like living off someone else's money and insisting that I deserve it and that I'll never give thanks to the person who's given it. Pretty soon that person will close their purse. Here's a story, perhaps to try and illustrate the fundamental root of what sin is like. It was told to me many years ago by a, a friend from Kenya. He described a young boy who grew up uh, in a very poor family. His parents saved up all, the, all that they could and sent him to a good school in Nairobi. They were so poor that he, had to, he couldn't come back to his parents. He just had to stay in Nairobi for year upon year. And they sent money faithfully to him, to keep him schooled and appropriately shod. Unfortunately, they had to go without. When his graduation day was coming, they decided that they would surprise him. And they walked barefoot, they had no shoes, barefoot to Nairobi, And uh, as they approached the school, they saw their son who happened to be walking down the street with uh, his smart, shod friends, all looking smart in his uniform. They were overjoyed to see him. And suddenly he caught sight of them. And he turned away and crossed the street and ignored them. That's the nature of sin, you see? We who've been given so much, every good gift comes from God. The good gift of forgiveness came from God at the expense of the death of Jesus Christ, His Son, on the cross. And those who turn away from that Well, they have turned away. They have caused the the, the most fundamental sin that could be imagined. Paul says, that's the big one. And make no uh, bones about it. Our ignoring of God is culpable. Verse 20. But since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. He says people can clearly, everyone can can clearly see what God is like. People debate how they might see that. Some some suggest that a close um, observation, particularly scientific observation of this world, can reveal the hand of the Creator God, particularly people who, who believe in in, uh, uh, in in a recent um, uh, creation of the world by by his uh, uh, by his own hands in the, in a very recent past, suggest that if you look carefully at the world, you will see signs that God, uh, the Creator, stepped in. Some people suggest that actually um, the way that we see. Uh, the 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 work of God in His hands is, is through observing biological systems and noticing what uh, scientists call irreducible complexity. How could something as complex as as uh, as Tony um, come into come into existence unless there was a God who actually had a prior um, commitment? to make a Tony and a Dan and a Daniel and all, all the rest of them. They're called intelligent design, those people. Actually, the older um, understanding, I think, is the stronger one for, of what Paul is talking about here. Um, people from John Calvin onwards have spoken of um, what they like to call a sensus divinitatis. That is, a deep instinct that there is a God. One of the reasons why I'm inclined to that, that belief is that the New Testament in particular is so strong that God reveals things to little children and hides them from the wise and learned. I've become over the years somewhat suspicious of, a, of proofs of the existence of God that uh, work for the wise and learned and bright uh, scholars from Oxford University and don't work for children. But when you, look, when you, when you talk to a child... They look at flowers, they look at mountains, they look at the sky, and they just instinctively say, well, there's a God, isn't there? I think that's what, uh, what the Apostle is talking about. We don't know everything about God, but we know enough. We know that he is a God of eternal power. Um, in, in verse 20, he says, that the... That the the extraordinary forces of the universe point to a God of majestic power. And we know his divine nature, that he is God, that he stands outside of this created order. He is not a part of it. Somehow that just impresses itself on the human heart instinctively. And so everyone, says Paul, Everyone stands guilty when they turn away from that God. Because we are natural worshippers, we don't turn away to worship nothing. We turn away to worship other lesser things. Verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like Mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Well, today, perhaps, in sophisticated Britain, we don't have that sort of crude idolatry that there has been through most of human history. But make no mistake about it, people are still worshippers of things other than God. Whatever we look to, to make us happy. Whatever we look to, to make us feel complete. That is the God we worship. If that is money, then we are worshippers of money. If that is a relationship, then we are worshippers of uh, 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 relationships, or that relationship in particular. If it is status, then we are worshippers of status. Human beings are intrinsic worshippers. And if it is not the living God that we are worshipping, We are idolaters. We will be disappointed by the thing we worship. It simply will not achieve what we hope it will. Notice that mortal, mortal that the Apostle Paul put into us there. These things we die. Why worship something that obviously dies? And if we are worshipping those other things then the God of all creation is angry, says Paul. And we must face his wrath. So there's his anger set out by Paul. There's the fundamental reason for his anger because we've turned away from him and worshipped Other things. Then Paul sets out the consequences of his anger. The response of God then to this turning away from him is extraordinary in two dimensions. God is extraordinary in affirming our dignity as human beings. But it it is extraordinarily terrifying that he does that. Three times the Apostle uses the phrase God gave them over. Did you see that? Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26 Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Verse 28, Furthermore, as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. In a very profound sense, God gives everyone what they want. And at one level, that is massively affirming to human dignity. We do make real choices. And we do have a God who honours those real choices. People's intrinsic sense, their their instinctive sense that we are um, morally accountable uh, creatures that make real choices, is is affirmed again and again in Scripture. And here it is. God allows them to have what they choose. But of course that is extraordinarily scary, isn't it? God gives them over. God gives people over. And we find that actually that simple choice of rejecting him sort of gathers momentum like a, like a snowball going down the hill. And what started as something quite small grows and grows and grows. He particularly emphasizes sexual immorality. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the, for, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And so on. He he repeats that again and again. It seems that sex is one of the great alternative drivers for human beings. If we don't love God, then uh, being uh, and, and are not driven by that, then we will sooner or later find ourselves driven by our groin. That's what the Bible seems to say. It's not the only sin. By any means. Uh, There are lots and lots of other sins. But I think everyone in the world uh, agrees that sex is an extraordinarily profound driver. And that is again and again the one that comes to rule human beings who turn away from the living God. There's a lot of controversy um, uh, that's been stirred up in the last few years in this passage over Paul's depiction of homosexuality. Did you see that in verse 27? In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Note, first of all, it's very important, as uh, we're only going to look at this briefly this evening, but it's very important to realise that he's not talking about every individual receiving explicitly the individual consequences of their own individual sin. The Bible does seem to portray um, various forms of dysfunctional sex as a result of the general fall of human beings, the general spread of sin amongst human beings. And here he picks up um, at what's Come to be called same-sex attraction, homosexuality, as w- as one of the one of the uh, aspects of that. If you if you talk to people who who uh, uh, um, study such things, you will find again and again that they they say yes, there there is often dysfunctionality of one sort or another that has led to this um, um, particular challenge that many people face. I'm not going to say anything more about that that this evening because next week um, we have a very important uh, evening here which we haven't advertised well enough, so you're the first people to hear about it really properly. Next week, um, a man called Sam Albury is going to come and give us, uh, we're going to give the evening over uh, to Time with Sam. Sam's uh, a minister in the Church of England. And uh, he struggles with exactly this issue with same-sex attraction. And I've asked Sam to come and talk about that, talk about what the Bible says, talk about his own um, personal experience and, uh, 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 and also to give us, to help us to sort of navigate this particularly complex and politically charged issue at the moment. Do come along... Um, Sam's also really keen that if you've got friends who are not yet Christians um, who might like to to hear someone who is an evangelical believer um, uh, has to deal with same-sex attraction but wants to maintain a chaste life um, do uh, bring them along the one thing he said is please not anyone who would be hostile Um, so uh, Sam has only recently become really public in talking about um, uh, this issue in his life and as you can imagine a, this will be the first time that he's spoken publicly in a, in a meeting of strangers he feels a little bit uh, fragile about it but do come along next week we'll be advertising it in the church um, so back to this text what does God do? God shockingly then gives us over to the desires of our hearts. It starts with, I don't want God to be the centre of my life. But it overflows into all sorts of other things. I could tell you story after story of how the, this snowballs in lives and in families. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one. Four generations of a family that I know who lived very close to this church. The first generation um, were uh, regular worshippers before the Second World War um, here in this church. And by all accounts, they were godly believers. The next generation grew up in the Sunday school of this church, but never did become believers. What happened was that um, They married, they got involved in the culture of the 60s, wife swapping and drugs and all sorts of things. And uh, 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 one is still alive but um, living in a very much diminished way. The son, though, the third generation from that, grew up in that chaos. He grew up to be an alcoholic um, I knew him quite well um, about five years ago though he died and the fourth generation actually came to Sunday school again and so far he hasn't come to, to faith he's a, young, uh, he's a young adult but I pray for him and that story could be repeated again and again and again A scholar wrote uh, a book a number of years ago called A Genealogy of Morals where she traced the descent of a a whole network of families who were very much involved with evangelical revival in the early and mid-19th century but by the early and mid-20th century all the members of those families were at the forefront in fact of the Bloomsbury set, and so on, of radically trying to alter the morality of this country. That is the way that it goes. There is this inexorable draw that starts, perhaps, with a relatively simple, I don't want to know you, God. But then, because of the dignity that God gives human beings, he gives them over, as Paul says. And those other desires grow and grow and cause more and more damage. Why on earth does the Apostle begin with that message as he wants to unpack the good news? Well, let me tell you a a couple of reasons, perhaps. One is that it is only as we realise how deep our plight is, that we are able to really fly to God for forgiveness. And he is going to unpack that forgiveness in Romans 1-4, to very clearly, very strongly. It is found through putting our faith in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross. And we need that. We need that desperately, says Paul. We are in a world which is in deep, deep trouble. We need that. We must fly to Christ for forgiveness. And the second is that God can reverse that process. Romans 5-8 is an unpacking of the new life that he gives to people who come to him for forgiveness. Where those sins, the power of those sins, start to be broken. God can and does do that so that familial and downward spirals can be reversed and people can be made new. He can change us. There is massive, massive good news for us to engage with. But we must, first of all, hear the bad news. Mummy comes in, puts a child on her knee. Mummy knows the child has done something really bad, that if that becomes a lifelong pattern, could harden into. A set of character traits that would do enormous damage to that child as they grow up, to their family, and who knows what carnage there will be. So, Mummy says, There is good news. Daddy's really angry. You need to understand how serious what you did, how seriously wrong what you did is. But you know, you can go to Daddy right now and you can be forgiven. And you know, we will love you. And we will help you to grow into the adult you should be. That's the good news. But you must know, what's gone wrong is really serious.